What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Today, we're chatting to Billy Shore, who's the executive chair and founder of Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. In this conversation, we talk a lot about hunger and how it affects sort of uh, families and especially children at the uh, elementary school level, high school level, and, and how sort of um, school lunches work and sort of the maturation of that, a little bit of its history and a little bit of how actually our, our soldiers that came back from World War II actually implemented the uh, school lunch program as, as we see it now. And of course, it's matured over time. But Billy has a, a tremendous three-decade uh, path on dealing with hunger in America and trying to find innovative ways to get food and, and get lunch and, and breakfast to you know children who need it, right? I mean, it's, it's, this is the issue that I think is really sort of different in that it doesn't affect everybody, but it affects a mass majority of people. 22 million kids are on uh, free or reduced lunch in, in schools. And that is an alarming number. And it's just a, uh, it's it's definitely something that, you know, you don't think about it on a daily basis, but when you are uh, in, in an in-depth conversation with somebody who's been in it day in and day out for, for 30 plus years, you start to really understand the toll that it can take on a family or, or a child and just the massive work that goes into implementing these policies in, in, in schools for such a basic need for kids in America. So I, I'll go ahead and make a little intro for Billy here and a sort of a little bit about his career and what he has done up to this point. But it's a phenomenal conversation and it is so educational to me. I hope it is to you. So Billy is the founder and executive of Share Our Strength. It's the parent organization for the No Kid Hungry campaign. Billy and his sister Debbie started this uh, organization in 1984. And since then, they've raised more than $700 million to fight hunger and poverty through you know policy creation, grants, uh, private company partnerships. We talk a lot more about that. It's really incredible what businesses are doing. He's also the chair of Community Wealth Partners, which is a consulting firm that really helps, you know, large companies figure out ways to to give back, right, and to solve this issue of hunger. Before founding Share Strength, Billy served on the senatorial and presidential campaign staffs for former U.S. Senator Gary Hart and as the chief of staff to former U.S. Senator Robert Kerry. In 2014, congressional leaders appointed Billy to the National Commission on Hunger, tasked with finding innovative ways to end hunger in America. In addition to his work, He's the author of four books, and we talk a little bit about his fifth book, maybe <laughs> coming out. We'll see. But he and he, uh, Billy, also has a podcast where he talks to um, innovative uh, chefs around the country about you know food and, and and how it plays a part in you know our social fabric and how you know every everybody in America at least should have three meals a day, right? That that is something I think we as a, a Americans can provide. And he talked on his podcast, he talks a, a lot about uh, food and, and especially with these chefs who are finding innovative ways um, to do just that. So again, I I really hope you, you enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I really want to give props to Billy in, in his career so far. He still has a long way to go, but he has done so much impact already. Um, so kudos to you, Billy. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening and have a great day. Thanks. Bye. The first thing I always like to start with is individuals' journeys to, to get where they are. And yours has been has has been pretty long and, and pretty illustrious. Um, so I wanted to see if you can kind of maybe start maybe in college or, or after college and, and when sort of you 
really got into the weeds of of trying to fight hunger and poverty in America and, and what sort of turned you on to to trying to dedicate most of your life to that? Well, I'd always uh, been interested in public service. I grew up in a family um, that was involved in that. My father was the district uh, administrative assistant to a, a congressman from Pittsburgh. And um, I went to school in Philadelphia and I always had it in my mind to work in Washington on Capitol Hill. So literally the day after I graduated from Penn, I drove down to D.C. and uh, started a, uh, not knocking on doors so much as knocking on one door because I wanted to work mm-hmm. for Senator Gary Hart from Colorado and finally ended up getting an internship there and then a job and then kind of rising through the ranks and becoming his chief of staff. But he ran for president twice unsuccessfully, um, which left me with a lot of organizing skills that uh, when his campaign ended, I was trying to figure out how to put to use. And it was right around the time his first campaign ended in 1984. And that was right around the time of the catastrophic famine in Ethiopia, in which hundreds of thousands of people Mm -hmm. perished. And uh, it got me to thinking about how can I use some of these campaign skills that I've developed to um, in a different arena. And so I had the idea to uh, start share our strength and to begin to very methodically organize the restaurant and food service industry. It, all, it always felt to me that hunger uh, was a solvable problem, particularly in the United States. There's no, mm-hmm. no shortage of food, no shortage of food programs. And so although the Ethiopian famine was kind of the catalyst, we did a little bit of international work, but then started to do a lot of work here in the United States. And it just seemed like of all the complicated problems we face from climate change to arms control to poverty and inequality, the notion of, you know, can we feed our kids? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just felt solvable and uh, attractive in that way. And support, hopefully, you know, support on both sides, because it's not really an issue that you would think would have, <laughs> you know, naysayers, it would probably have a bit of bipartisan support, but um, you never really know. But it, it seems like a general issue that everybody can sort of get behind. And, and have you seen that in your career? Have you seen, you know, both sides come on board and try to try to solve? I mean, it, it is odd that it is a huge problem, especially in America, right? We we think of Ethiopia, we don't think of, of Boston, right, or Denver, but uh, our major cities do have you know, hunger issues, really everyone in the United States. So do you see that bipartisan support over your career of trying to, to solve the problem? Uh, yes, we have seen a lot of bipartisan support, although I'd say that there are probably limits to it. So mm-hmm. when, when, when we got focused on the particular campaign that we're uh, running now called the No Kid Hungry campaign, the notion was that uh, if we fully leveraged the existing food and nutrition programs that exist for kids in this country, we could guarantee that they get three meals a day. So, you know, what happened is going back as far as War II, when admirals and generals came back from that war in 1946, they went to Congress and they said, by the end of the war, our troops were not strong enough or fit enough. Our young people mm. just weren't healthy enough to fight effectively. Uh, and so they they were the ones who kind of recommended a, a school lunch and ultimately a, a school breakfast program. So those were the origins of these things. And so all security implications, it had a lot of bipartisan support. And we ended up with a program today that has, as it's grown, has 22 million children in the United States getting a free or reduced price school lunch, 100 percent, the food itself being 100 percent subsidized by the federal government. Uh, of the 22 million getting lunch, all 22 million are eligible for breakfast. But 
Uh, today, only 12 million are, are getting it because at lunch, they're already there. And at breakfast, there are other challenges, which has been a big focus of our work has been to increase that. So there has been a great bipartisan support for that. And most of these programs are executed by governors. Uh, so they've existed a long time. Now it's a matter of faithful execution of them. And that's up to governors and mayors and school superintendents. And the when I say it's been bipartisan, and, and we've been intentionally bipartisan about it. So when we recruit a, a Democratic governor, we make sure that we recruit a Republican governor as well, so that there's always balance. It doesn't look like it's one party's or another's thing. But the tricky part, I think, going forward for us will be that while uh, everybody's in favor of feeding a hungry child, who mm -hmm. would be against that? Not everybody is necessarily in favor of doing what I would say is probably the best thing we could do for a hungry child, which is find a way to support and strengthen their parents and their family. And those become caught up in more uh, complicated political mm -hmm. issues. Um, and frankly, these, a lot of these families of uh, low-income kids have lots of challenges. Uh, there's been a chronic unemployment or underemployment. There's been uh, alcohol and substance abuse. There's been warrant families, lots of things that create additional challenges for kids. And not everybody's enthousi as, as enthusiastic as try about trying to solve those problems. The parents aren't always as sympathetic as the, the children are. Mm -hmm. So right. the, the politics have, have been bipartisan, but there's a point at which I'm sure we'll test the boundaries of that. <laughs> um, I, I want to get into uh, a lot about what's going on now, but to take a, a step back into what sort of give a maybe a broad picture of what what hunger is sort of like in America right over the last, you know, two decades from, you know, maybe where we were when you sort of first got into the realm to kind of where we are now has there been improvements has it has it been the, the same or or has there been large impact that has been made within trying to figure out a way to you know feed people consistently right especially kids i think in schools but there's also you know we have a big homeless population or you know domestic violence shelters there's there's kind of other pockets of of individuals that you know probably need food too right so just can you take us through the journey of, of how America maybe has grown in, in its impact over the years to try to solve it? That's a really good question. I'd say there's been dramatic improvement, particularly over the last 10, year, 10 years, but mm -hmm. uh, even over the last 10 or 20. And so one of the challenges with hunger in America has always been that it's less visible. We don't have kids who are literally starving mm -hmm. to right. death. We don't have uh, the kind of malnutrition that you would see in parts of Africa or Asia. So it's disguised a little bit. But uh, we have lots of kids, uh, and we know, and our, our best witnesses to this are teachers who have to deal with this in the classroom in ways that are, you know, probably more complex than almost anybody else faces. When teachers have hungry kids, um, those kids can't learn. They don't pay attention as well. They have other kinds of, you know, behavioral issues. So we saw quite a bit of that 20 years ago. And one of the things that we decided to do at Share Strength was to kind of put a, a stake in the ground and say, we really think that we could end childhood hunger, not just feed kids, but end childhood hunger. If we find ways to make sure that kids get three meals a day, um, they may be poor, they may be food insecure, their families may have lots of challenges, but if they're getting three meals a day, uh, we can be reasonably confident that at least they're not uh, hungry at the kind of physiological level that we 
think of as hunger. So we got very focused on, uh, as I was saying a moment ago, these kind of existing programs because there's um, so much, it's kind of anomalous in this time where we're always fighting about uh, budgets and federal spending and politics, but there's so much money available for these particular programs. So of, of the 22 million kids who get a free school lunch, when we started looking at this, I said a moment ago, the 12 million today are getting breakfast, and that's true. But when we started our No Kid Hungry campaign 10 years ago, only 9 million were getting breakfast. So we've added about 3 million kids to the to the breakfast program. And, and what we've, the way we've done that is we've actually moved breakfast in thousands and thousands of schools from the cafeteria where kids need to get there early before school, and many of them can't. And there's the stigma attached to being the kids who have to show up early for the free meal. We've moved breakfast from the cafeteria to the classroom, to first period, or to uh, some other time during the school day itself rather than before the school day. And that's added millions of kids to the program. We still have about 3 million left to go. But what we're seeing to, you know, to get to your question specifically, and it's really, I think of it as kind of a, a historic uh, turning point. Um, I, I, I'll, just, I'll give you an example. I was recently in the Almonte, California school system. Um, this is about an hour inland from Los Angeles. 7,000 kids in the school system. Mm. 2,500 of the 7,000 are homeless. Uh, 2,500 of 7,000, which is really shocking. 97% of the kids are on free or reduced price lunch, meaning they're you know at or near the poverty line. And most of the school systems families are Hispanic and Asian. And so there's many undocumented um, uh, parents who are not able to find, you know, really uh, financially rewarding work. So in the past, that would have been a guarantee. Those would have been social determinants. You're poor, you're homeless, your parents are undocumented, you're going to be hungry. But the amazing thing is these kids were not hungry. They're getting breakfast in the classroom. So 100% of them are getting breakfast. They're all getting lunch. There's actually an after-school supper program. There's a variety of challenges that exist on weekends and and the sure. summertime. But you know what the teachers will tell you is, uh, unfortunately, these kids are poor, and unfortunately, their families are food insecure. But they're no longer hungry. So, uh, you know, we always say that uh, solving poverty is complex, but feeding a child is not. We we know <laughs> how to at least feed kids, and as we do that, you get to the point where these kids now actually have a chance to kind of break this cycle of poverty. They have a, a, a much better chance of paying attention in class. They have a much better chance of uh, not having the behavioral challenges or not having to go to the nurse's office. We're seeing test scores, which we can measure right, right. Uh, in correlation to school breakfast. We're seeing test scores and attendance go up. So there's really a, a, an opportunity to, you know, to break this intergenerational cycle of poverty a little bit through through these school meals programs. So yeah, we've seen big, big improvement. And I would say that access to school meals is at its highest level in history and childhood hunger today is at its lowest level. We've, we've reduced it by about 30% over the last eight years. You said some of the challenges this summer, that would be, you know, a, probably a pretty big challenge. What are, what are some of the, what are some of the things maybe being implemented to try to figure out a way to still get some type of meals into those kids, even when they're not at school, or is it a way to, you know, figure out a way to have sort of school all year round, right? Like if, right. if, 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 if the, the school is sort of the, the, the home for, for everything, right. It's sort of this, this little hub where, where things, where everybody 
gravitates towards, then maybe um, is there some type of summer program that um, instead of just not going to school all summer, right, there's some type of program where they still get the meals, but there's some sort of, I know there's teachers involved. And I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of different things. People have to be there to teach. And so, so there's a lot, there's a bunch of different barriers and hurdles to get over, but it, it, how is the, the summer stuff? How does that happen? Well, when the summer meals program was originally created, I think they were anticipating that a lot of public schools were going to have uh, summer school and mm-hmm. that would be the place where kids would get it and that existed um, by and large in a lot of places i think because of budget cuts drains mm-hmm. on school systems a lot of summer school programs have been eliminated so kids aren't at school in the summer now and so what we've had to do is place that by building this kind of patchwork quilt of boys and girls club uh, church basements and parks and recreation department facility meals can be served organized but it's a very clunky system it reaches relatively few kids of the 22 million getting lunch all 22 million are eligible for summer meals but only 3 million uh, are getting it so it's been very hard to find a substitute infrastructure or an alternative infrastructure for the schools themselves but the the tantalizing thing about this as was the case for breakfast is the the money is there for it. So mm-hmm. a lot of what a lot of what we've done with the No Kid Hungry campaign, particularly over the last five or six years, is go around to governors, Democrats, Republicans, uh, big states, small states, and almost any governor I talked to. I remember the first one in probably 2008 was Governor Ritter from Colorado, who was a former Peace Corps volunteer, worked on nutrition programs, uh, moderate Democrat, cared passionately about kids in nutrition. And at the time I spoke to him, I said, you know, Colorado ranks 47th lowest out of 50 hmm. states in the percentage of eligible kids who are who are participating in these programs. And he was, well, how could that be? And he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, one thing it means is that, you know, you've left about $130 million in Washington that can only be used to buy milk from your dairy farmers and bread from hmm. your bakers and supplies from your vendors to feed your kids. So the, the point is, you know, every state, uh, every governor has funding available for this. And in many cases, they're not even aware of it. And one of our biggest challenges is not that uh, people are against solving childhood hunger. Uh, it's just that there's so many other issues competing for their attention in the right. schools where we work. You know, schools are dealing, uh, dealing with, you know, standardized test scores and uh, violence and drugs. And, you know, getting their attention about feeding is just one more thing that they've got to deal with. So every governor that we've spoken to, regardless of their politics, once they've understood that the resources exist to feed kids and have them do better, have jumped at the chance to do it. When we say three meals a day, and uh, you, you mentioned sort of like local dairy farmers and bakeries, is how does the, the the creation of the food actually work? Is it coming from a company or is it coming from, you know, like you said, local farmers, local food production yeah. facilities? And does it work different in, in different states? It's a it's a good question, and it works different uh, almost everywhere. So, yeah. you know, every uh, every state or locality basically contracts with a food service provider that specializes in school food and meets the requirements that are of the of the federal government for the nutritional value of the food mm-hmm. and can serve the meals at the cost that it gets reimbursed which for breakfast is you know somewhere around a dollar 80 for lunch somewhere around three dollars or a, a little bit less and so it's it's different everywhere it's not standardized some schools, are more intentional about 
trying to contract with a food service provider that uh, purchases locally and uh, purchases healthier foods and fewer processed foods. An interesting example in the city of Boston, which has a very old uh, public uh, school infrastructure, the physical plant is very old. There aren't uh, kitchens, or at least there weren't kitchens in Boston public schools up until a few years ago. So all of the food uh, in for Boston students was actually being cooked on Long Island and frozen and then put on a train or a, a truck and probably served about a month later to kids, you know, thought out and served, obviously not the most healthy or appetizing thing you could do. And so there was a, a foundation here in Boston called the Shaw Foundation that uh, undertook to basically renovate public school kitchens and build kitchens so that they could do scratch cooking and cook healthy. And so now Boston schools are cooking their own meals and uh, the, the kids are eating it and they're, you know, you don't see a lot of food getting thrown away. It's really really tasty and nutritious. So, but it varies. It's, there's, there's no one, um, you know, there's no one switch to, to, to turn that, that could affect all of them at one time. We get, these are all negotiated one school at a time or one school district at a time. When you talk about the campaign now, so No Kid Hungry now, and it's in the sort of present tense, what are maybe some of the big overarching issues that you're still facing or that are still something that is the big you know, North Star right now is, is getting those 12 million on breakfast to the 22 million. Is it trying to get summer situated? And it's difficult because, like you said, every area is just so different. Is there some priorities now since, you know, at a decade is a, is a is a while to get a lot of learnings and, and do things wrong, do things right. So what's sort of the, the strategy now and trying to uh, for the next decade, I guess? Well, it, it's a great question, Grant. And one of the things that I really love about the work that we're doing now is that it's measurable in a real-time way. Mm-hmm. So we know right. in any given state or community, how many kids are getting these meals and how many are not. Is um, that because technology has just progressed so much where you can sort of actually have like data analytics to help? Or is it because schools are more um, intertwined and they want to help more? Is there a certain reason why um, the data is so prevalent now? I, well, I think it's just because to get their federal reimbursements, they have to gotcha. track this very carefully. Gotcha. So so we benefit from that. And we know that uh, although we've added 3 million kids to school breakfast over the last few years, there's 3 million left to go. So our, our number one overriding, overarching goal as an organization is to cut that breakfast gap in half once again. We cut it mm-hmm. in half once. Your, your question about, you know, are we trying to get to 22 million kids having breakfast is a really good question. Um, and we actually don't think about it quite that way because um, although 22 million kids are having lunch at school, uh, there's always going to be some percentage of kids that uh, are going to have breakfast with uh, at home with mom and dad, which is great. Sure. Um, right. So, you know, some families need the support of breakfast, lunch, and an after-school supper or snack. Some families only need the support of lunch or some combination of those. And so our goal is to, uh, our feeling is that if we get 70% of the kids who are having lunch uh, to make sure that 70% of them are also having breakfast. That's probably about 100% of the kids that actually need it. So we, so rather than getting to 22 million, we probably need to get to more like, uh, you know, 16 or, or 15 or 16 or 17 million. Uh, we're not sure. There's not, it's not as much science. There's a little bit of art uh, as well as science to it. Um, we know that in the, the summertime, the gap is so significant that there's a long way to go there. And there's some complicated federal regulations that make it hard to feed kids. One of the rules is that they have to eat on what they call a congregate basis, which means they have to eat 
together. So hmm. kids can't come to a boys and girls club. And uh, if they're at the boys and girls club from nine in the morning until noon, they can't take their lunch home with them. Uh, hmm. They have to eat it with the other kids. And this was originally designed to encourage some, you know, group enrichment activities and educational and recreational activities to provide an incentive for those. But it's made it hard to really get meals to, you know, we want to be able to get meals to kids, not have to worry about getting kids to meals in the summertime. But <laughs> unfortunately, we've got to worry about the latter. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I know some of, some of the work you kind of do, you have a sort of a separate side of 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 a firm your consulting firm the community wealth yep. partners is is working with the private sector and companies have they been maybe more open or just more educated on maybe the issue of hunger and how i guess how do how has the private sector maybe have you seen over the last decade really maybe helped no kid hungry or, or help you know your cause in general or help you talk to you know politicians about this issue it's a great question. The private sector has played a huge role for us, probably more for us than most other anti-hunger organizations, just mm -hmm. because we kind of built that into our model from the beginning. And our, our feeling was that as important as charity is, there weren't going to be enough charitable dollars to solve the problems at the scale they existed. And so we really believed that we had to be a nonprofit that not just redistributed wealth, but actually created it that we needed to think of um, our not being a nonprofit as a tax status, not as a management philosophy. So could, could we actually as a nonprofit go out and make money that right. we used for the purpose of impacting the community? And so the private sector for us has always been key. And we started by really methodically organizing chefs and restaurateurs feel, feeling that they would have a, a connection to the issue of hunger since they made their livelihoods from feeding people. And that turned out to be the case. And we ended up with probably today, 25,000, some chefs and restaurateurs who are, you know, really uh, deeply engaged with us and deeply engaged with work in their community around hunger. And that also created an opportunity for us to, uh, in effect, be kind of a market assembler of, of chefs and restaurateurs so that when uh, companies ranging from city the bank to Williams Sonoma to Grubhub, anybody who's dealing with uh, restaurants and culinary consumers, many of those companies started to come to us to engage in cause related marketing and mm -hmm. uh, different corporate partnerships that I would say, you know, they got into because they felt a connection to the food related issues that we work with. They thought it would be good for their business. And the longer they worked on it, the more they realized that. This is something that they and their employees really cared about. I, I was just uh, over the last couple of days with the CEO of the Denny's Casual Restaurant Group, mm -hmm. uh, a man named John Miller. And he was saying that of their, um, you know, so I, I can't remember how many thousands of team members they have who work at Denny's, but many of those young people were these kids that we're serving now, right? They were in the school breakfast program. Right. They were in the school lunch program. They're still, you know, barely making it economically and so they've got a real uh not just sympathy for but passion for for trying to make a difference so yeah so the private sector plays a you know a very big role and the funding tends to be more flexible and we can target it more strategically i would say that uh for sure our strength of the 85 million dollar budget that we have today um and you know these these reimbursements for school meals that i was talking about they don't go through 
Uh, so we don't have any federal money in the organization, except maybe, a, you know, an AmeriCorps volunteer, a few of those who are getting uh, stipends from the government. But essentially, all our funding is private. And of our $85 million budget, I would say that uh, about $65 million of it comes from different types of corporate partnerships and events and corporate wow. sponsorships. That's so amazing. that's a big role. And then, yeah. as you were mentioning, our our subsidiary, our consulting firm, Community Wealth Partners, the genesis for it was a lot of other nonprofits coming to us saying, mm -hmm. how do you do this? How do you work with other businesses? How do you engage them in, in really meaningful ways? And so we set up this consulting firm originally so they would have the capacity to do that. Now it does a much broader range of strategic consulting for nonprofits. You had mentioned uh, Grubhub a little bit and I know I had interviewed uh, the CEO of DoorDash, and uh -huh. they had a program where essentially they would pay their drivers um, at the end of the night, um, where they work with local restaurants, and it would ping a you know a driver around to come pick up um, the leftover food, and they could bring it to homeless shelters and bring it to uh, domestic violence shelters because it was still good food, right? They were just going to yep. throw it away. Is is some of the the, the corporate partners? Is it just monetarily? that it is what they give or have you guys tried to figure out a way to allocate food waste correctly maybe maybe kids aren't in school right maybe there are kids that are just in shelters or on the streets or whatever it may be right there, there's a lot of different circumstances but is food waste a topic that that the organization talks about a lot and maybe you can go into a little bit of, a bit about that yeah it is food waste is as you know something like i don't know almost as much as 30 percent of all yeah, it's in a lot. This country mm -hmm. that's wasted. So it's a very big number. I'd say it's it's not our our primary is, uh, issue only because of you know it, we haven't seen it as the most efficient or the most leveraged yeah. way to feed people. But it's one that's you know it, it it's really got to be addressed. And there's some great organizations out there that focus on it and that we have funded over the years. So you know we're a a, a big fan of trying to address that. I would say that you know most of our our, our partners are helping us financially, but also in terms of kind of like the strategic design and the intellectual design work of what we're doing. So right now, you know, Amazon is a partner of ours. And mm -hmm. uh, just like, you know, as you mentioned, DoorDash or Grubhub, just think about the expertise in delivering to people, right. that, you know, right. uh, in, yep. in an efficient way. So we're in, we're in conversations about how to, you know, do that with some of the things that we're doing. Um, and, and I, and my, my, guess is that, you know, we'll always focus on kind of the, uh, you know, the, the large systems change, but there are always people who are going to fall between the cracks and are not going to be part of the systems change where what you described with DoorDash or what we're doing with Amazon or Grubhub could, you know, be a big part of that. We've been talking a, little, a lot about, about America, but going back to the beginning, you know, the catalyst was for you was sort of the Ethiopian famine. And there's, a lot of differences between hunger in America and global hunger, right? It's here we have enough food, there there's not, right? Have have you still been working globally? Does the organization work globally at all and trying to figure out ways to maybe take some of the strategies from America and, you know, obviously we can't implement everything there, but maybe some tidbits that maybe other organizations you work with that are trying to solve this problem globally. What's, what's sort of the landscape of, of sort of global hunger right now that, that from your perspective? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that Grant. It, you know, it's um, globally, of course, it exists on a, on an enormous scale and a, um, a really severe scale in places like uh, Africa, Ethiopia, mm -hmm. 
Haiti, India. I mean, you can name a lot of places where people are really, uh, where there's real desperation and, and people literally die of famine and starvation. So we've, we frankly have really been torn about the best way to do that and the best way to have an impact. One of our kind of guiding mantras comes from a, uh, the writer and social activist, Jonathan Kozel, who said you should pick battles that are big enough to matter, but small enough to win. And mm. I've always loved that construct yeah. because there's so many things that we care about on a local level and on a global level. And uh, at the end of the day, if you're not winning some, you're not helping people in the way that right. you designed to, and you're not going to have the resources that sustain you to go on to the next fight. Um, so we had been, you know, even though we had this international origins, we'd been very focused on domestic, but about four or five years ago, we started to say to ourselves, look, we're learning some things that may have applicability right. internationally and the whole world's connected in ways, you know, more so than it's ever been before. So we've got to get back involved in that. So we've recently started uh, some grant making back internationally. So for example, India has uh, one of the largest school meals programs. I think the largest school meals programs, just given the size of India in the world. And there's an organization there called Akshaya Patra, uh, which delivers meals to uh school kids in India that we're now funding. Um, and we'll start to do that in other parts of Asia and Africa as well. We'll probably do it in ways that are at least initially very aligned to what we're doing here. So here our focus is on school meals. And if we could, you know, take some of that expertise and not just take it, but learn from the expertise of others like those in India who are doing things differently than we've done them, uh, there could be some real synergies and mutual benefit there. I'm going to put my, my nerd hat on here for a second. And, uh, you know, you, you don't you don't have to answer. We don't have to go into it a lot because it, it can be a little bit of a, a tricky subject matter, but sort of the in the last maybe, you know, two years, we've seen this growth of um, Beyond Meat and, and Impossible Foods and sort of using technology to essentially create food, right? I mean, lab-grown yep. food, right? I mean, it's it, it's sort of crazy to think about, but, you know, there's some pros and cons to it. But I, I think the glaring pro is that we can feed people who don't have food, right? Yep. At its base level, that's what one really big positive thing you could do. Do you see organizations working globally to try to figure out the dynamics of that? I do. I'm very optimistic about it long term. I don't think we're right. there yet in the so short early term. On, so, yeah. Well, so, you know, and I'm a big fan of Beyond Meat, for example, and know uh, the founder, Seth Goldman, and I just think it's a, a, a great company. Um, but as you know, a Beyond Meat burger is actually more expensive <laughs> Than yeah, a regular no, burger, absolutely not, not less. And so, you know, um, you'll you'll always have that issue until, but but the technology obviously uh, suggests that th there's a point at which there are going to be economies and scale where you know if you're able to make food that way, it could be more accessible. Right now, ironically, in some ways, it's less accessible to a low income yeah, family. Of course, um, but I think it holds the you know there's a there's a promise and a potential embedded in your question that gives me a lot of optimism that those things are going to be real tools for us to feed people. So I, I was reading that you've you've written a few books over the years, but the last one was in 2010. It's it's been a while. <laughs> is there uh, is there is there something that you're working on? <laughs> you're, you're you're killing me, Grant. Because this is I, w I wake up every morning saying just in a time to do some writing, and uh, the day job has been you know has kind of taken over. 2010, God, that really makes me feel bad. Um, but no, I do think about this a lot, and yeah, I think you know I I will do some 
writing probably sooner rather than 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 later. Um, there's there's a couple different things I've been thinking about. One is, you know, we've got a uh, a podcast that we do called Add Passion and Stir, and yep. we've had about 150 some conversations with uh, chefs about their their passion for making a difference in the world. And there've been some just I think some really interesting things that have come out of that. Um, and then I've, I've also been you know trying to figure out what might be the the you know the narrative frame for talking about why we kind of give lip service to investing in children, but we, you know, our, our, our actions don't really live up to our words. And what are the political considerations and what are the political forces and interests that kind of keep the status quo in place so that we've got such a, a disparity and a, a dissonance between what we say we know we should do to invest in the next generation and what we actually do. So I'm, I'm hoping to do some writing soon. And, uh, you know, your, your question mm-hmm. might've been the, the, catalyst for me you know turning off my email and getting to work (laughs) um through the podcast when you talk to to chefs and you know food is i think they're the one thing that i noticed too just through through cause ours there's there are some really innovative sort of restaurants coming out and you know chefs taking an innovative approach to like hiring for 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 one thing right maybe hiring you know kids from kids or, or or adults from from homeless shelters or domestic violence shelters and sort of preparing them and, and sort of educating them, giving them skills to to actually provide for themselves through, you know, through restaurant and, and the service industry. What are, do you have some some uh, like chefs that really stand out or, or restaurants that that people should know about that are doing some interesting things sort of in the social impact space? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, so many of them are. Uh, and I think, you know, chefs, Fundamentally, when you talk to them about it, as we have on our podcast, so many of them say that, you know, they, they've always seen themselves in the business of taking care of people, of trying mm-hmm. to help other people. And so we had uh, on a man named Sam Polk, who's in Los Angeles, who's created um, something called Every Table. And the idea was that uh, if you're low income, uh, you not only have a scarcity of money, but you have scarcity of time. You, you know, mm. your, your schedule is consumed by, you know, appointments for assistance and all these kind of interventions with the bureaucracy. And so he's created a commissary that creates prepared food uh, in small retail outlets for low-income families with variable pricing based on the neighborhood. So it's a very different kind of concept, very innovative. I think of them as a real uh, entrepreneur. Uh, there are lots of chefs who, uh, there's a chef in Richmond, Virginia, who I was with named Jason Alley, uh, who's, you know, been creating a restaurant in Richmond, the sole purpose of which is to help fund the food bank, the, all the profits, you know, he's got a number of restaurants, but there's going to be one that's designated so that all the profits, uh, go back into the community. So I think chefs are, you know, keenly tuned into that. And they obviously participate in lots of food and wine benefits and other types of events. We actually deploy chefs and, and volunteers to a, a program called Cooking Matters, which is a nutrition education program. Because when you think about all the information that most of them just take for granted that they, what they know right. about right. grocery shopping and food budgeting and the nutritional value of different foods to be able to impart that to families that are struggling on a low income is, you know, incredibly valuable. So uh, I'll, I'll sort of wrap it up here and, and maybe the, the last question I'll have is, you know, you've you've kind of been in in this for for a while now. Let's just ballpark it at 1984, right? So, I mean, that's a significant amount of time to be trying to solve a problem or, or trying to be part of, you know, a bigger 
a bigger movement to to solve a, a certain problem. This one sort of being hunger. What are you most proud of? I think. I mean, there's so much thing, so much you know stuff that that you have uh, accomplished. Can you just take us through maybe you know what those last three decades have been like, and, and what you know you can hang your hat on when you go to sleep at night? Yeah. Well, I'd I'd say you know one of the learnings, which is you know almost kind of implied by how long we've been at it, is that it takes longer than you you think you it will, and that you've got to invest the time. I'd say we've been you know nothing if not stubborn. Stubbornness is probably one of our the most important attributes we've we've brought to this work because it does take time. And one of the books that I'd written was called The Cathedral Within, using cathedral building as a mm-hmm. metaphor for how you can work on things your whole mm-hmm. life, which is like the great cathedrals all took four or 500 years to build. And uh, so everybody who worked on them, the only thing they knew for sure was that they wouldn't see their work finished in their lifetime. But that didn't detract from their you know, craftsmanship or dedication. It actually increased it because they knew they were a part of something larger than themselves. So it does take time. And um, and I think kind of calibrating your strategy realistically to how long it's going to take to solve a problem uh, gives you a, you know, a, a much sounder strategy. And I, I'd say, you know, the other big learning for us, which was kind of at the core of the idea of share our strengths from the beginning uh, and the notion that everybody has a strength to share, uh, the thing that I've been most excited witnessing and and observing and learning about is you know the number of people who have felt empowered or that share our strength has helped to feel empowered by realizing that they do have something to give back and you know if we're going to solve the problems that really exist in this country it's uh, and we all you know at one level we all know this uh the politicians by themselves can't solve all the problems Mm -hmm. the nonprofit sector can't solve them alone Mm -hmm. the business sector can't solve them it really is going to take all of us and we've got to create vehicles through which people feel like they can give back to their community. So the thing that I get, you know, the most excited about and the most uh, fulfilled by, um, and we're just coming off of a, a convening of a kind of what we called our leadership summit, where we had about 80 of our stakeholders in from around the country, or the number of either restaurant owners or chain restaurant CEOs or chefs who would say, you know, I never knew I could make such a difference in this community, quote, just by being a chef. And, you know, that to me, that's an a kind of a form of empowerment, which will be significant way beyond what they do on hunger relief or for share our strength. Hopefully that will be kind of a, a lifelong pivot that they've made towards community engagement. So still got a long way to go, but um, I think, I think we're on the right path and, you know, like any organization, we try to be a learning organization and no matter how long we've been doing it every day, keep learning how to do it better. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I love, I, I, I've been kind of, I mean, kind of uh, scratching my itch here with this type of stuff. Usually, it's uh, usually you talk about a lot of to to business founders and things like that. But it, it's it's always gratifying to talk about how we can all, from the business sector to the nonprofit sector to the government side of things, to really come together to figure out ways to solve these really massive issues. Right. That that's the one thing that I love that you said is that it's everybody has to be involved from from every sector of our society, because whether it's education or poverty or homelessness or hunger, these things are monumental in scale and they are going to only be, you know, solved is a strong word, (laughs) but only, you know, we're only going to progress if sort of everybody's in it together. And I think the topic of hunger is hopefully one thing that you know, at least 80% of us can agree on, right? Maybe how to solve it is is the is the hurdle that we need to get over. But um, I think the problem 
that exists, I think we can all fig- try to come together, figure out a way to to minimize it. And uh, and it, it's great what you said earlier about education, right? I think because you're in the weeds so much, you're like, well, I know about all this stuff. You know, my Congress congresswoman or congressman or senator must know this stuff too. But like you said, they're so intertwined with a bunch of different topics when you speak with them and you tell them about this this problem in their local communities, they are right there. They're they're a bit shocked and in awe that something this um, elementary exists um, in America right. and even in their backyard, so to speak. Um, so it, it, I love this because it, it, it's it's all educational for for me and for people listening. It's uh, it, it's something that I think we take a break from our busy our busy lives and, and take a step back and think about wow, this this stuff exists uh, locally. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, there's amazing organizations like, like yours trying to figure it out. So uh, I appreciate your time and your dedication. Well, likewise, thanks so much for talking about this with us. And I know, you know, your listeners are the kind of folks that are making a difference in the community. So this feels like a great opportunity for us. I really, really appreciate being on.